Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. Well, Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, September 12th, 2021. Right. Uh, yeah, beautiful day. And the uh, first day of the NFL season. So uh, I was going to say, you know, some people say Happy New Year for Rosh Hashanah, but also there's Happy New Year for the NFL fans. Right, and it's a big one because it's back to normal. Yeah, well, there are fans, and, and the fans. If, if by back to normal, you you mean the Giants are losing again? You got to wait because they played four o'clock. But got I, it. I think you're probably going to be right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who are they playing? They play the Denver Broncos. And are they home or away? They're home. They're underdogs, and uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, I don't want to spend time on a game that hasn't been played yet, but I'm not optimistic. All right, so here we are um, in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, still right. digging out. Yeah, I mean, uh, we went on a bike ride today. Uh, you know, the thing that people don't know about you, or maybe they do, is that you're intrepid, uh, which is not <laughs> the same thing as being a great bicycle rider. It just means you're intrepid, which means that when we, well, you're a pretty good bicycle rider, but I'm the kind of guy who, uh, when I see that there are barriers up ahead, uh, mainly directed to cars, uh, I say to myself, well, says, let's turn around. <laughs> it says road Closed. Road, road, the words "road closed" mean more, different things to me. It's a than suggestion. They do, it's, it's a, a <laughs> You know, it, it's uh, it's just you know a warning. It doesn't mean you don't bike there. It just means the roads closed. So it may it, not be you know entirely intact. Yes, I don't know how many times I've been on roads that are in rough shape with this woman. After passing a sign that says roads closed. But we did quite well today. We did today. We did not have to turn around no, once. We had to, but you keep turning uh, your sideways. Is that a policeman over there? Is it, what's going on? But we made it through. And we surprisingly, we uh, got through what, a route that I thought might have been uh, damaged. But it wasn't damaged. So it was damaged in places, but it was still passable. Yeah, Let's us, put it that way. We're in and yeah. um, I will say that the area has suffered some real damage. And yeah, um, it, the uh, Lambertville, especially, people in Lambertville, their belongings are out on the street. Yeah, a um, lot of the belongings are And uh, still, a week later. But how was the wine store today? The wine store, um, which is in, no, in Stockton. In Stockton, you're right. It's in Stockton. Yeah. And uh, it, you know, he said. The, the proprietor said um, it's about 95% dried out. Oh, okay. So that's it's, it's taking a week to dry that place out. Right. First they floor. Had, yeah. Well, yeah. it's only one floor, really. Yeah, uh, look, a lot of flooding. Uh, a lot of. So, uh, but hopefully, I mean, their broken. business is clearly going to survive, but there are other businesses in the area that uh, are not going to survive. Uh, and the buildings are, may be condemned. Yeah, between and, COVID and having, you know, the buildings destroyed by this, by these rough. floods. No question. It's rough. It, it's been a rough time, so. Anyway, uh, so we actually were away this week. We were at Mohawk. We've spoken about Mohawk Mountain House before, so we're not going to go into the charms of Mohawk Mountain House in any great detail right now. What lured us there, well, it's different at different times of year, and we love the idea of swimming outside, uh, even at the end of the season, which is what it is, which means the water's a little cold, which in, means that, In the lake. In the lake. Swim which, in the lake. Which means that the only people in the lake or you and me. No, there were a couple other people. A couple of other people. There were hundreds of people at the hotel, and there were two or three people. One of them... Uh, in being, the most beautiful lake in, in the, the world. Beautiful, and one <laughs> of them, by coincidence, is Helen Sung, who's one of the reasons that we... Her presence, one of the reasons we went up there. She's a jazz pianist. We go up there to see her performances every once in a while as a jazz pianist. She's fantastic. Uh, and we enjoyed seeing her again. We do chatter up a little bit on the lake. She's intrepid in her, in her own way. She went off the diving board. Uh, nobody else followed. So uh, I give her credit for that. Uh, we saw another interesting uh, pair perform. Uh, a couple. Sue Anderson. And you pronounced this fellow's last name better than I did. Chris Grundahl. I believe Grunendahl. Right. Grunendahl. Excuse me. Uh, who, they, they were described in the program as a premier Broadway couple. Yeah, well, let's say they're a Broadway she's couple. She's pretty much, she's a, a music director. Music director of things going back. And he's a performer. He's right. a vocalist. Right. And uh, so she goes back to being the musical director of Pirates of Penzance with Kevin Klein and other things besides. But if you do the math, that's a few years ago. And uh, Chris, I'll call him Chris Grunendahl. Uh Chris, uh, a beautiful voice, a tenor. Uh, has uh, been in uh, four different uh, Sondheim productions, uh, Sweeney Todd and others. And um, 
he made one funny remark uh, saying, you know, aside from performing uh, the works of Mozart, uh, who uh, the equivalent in his mind being Sondheim, he also performed the works of Salieri. And by that, uh, he meant uh, Andrew uh, Lloyd Webber. He played Phantom of the Opera and he played uh, the Phantom. He set for 800 performances on the road mostly. But even so, he's got a real voice. And they were a cute couple, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was a very nice performance. Yeah. Uh, very often you have a little Broadway uh, medley performance yeah. by two people, sometimes very well known, and uh, it can be cloying yeah. and uh, just downright boring um, because they, you know, they pick all the old uh, chestnuts or whatever. And they had put together a a fairly interesting program right. where you wouldn't know every song and every song wasn't uh, totally from Broadway anyway. Um, and uh, it was very entertaining. Yeah, I enjoyed it. The guy sang great. Uh, the woman's not really a pianist, uh, number one, but she did well accompanying him. They have a good chemistry. I will say they're a little heavy on the uh, memory, looking back, autumn of my years type theme. theme. We had a lot of September song you know, try to remember. I think uh, they probably were playing felt they to were the playing to the audience. Yes, I know, I know. Okay, because it's not. It's, a, it's all it, the audience. It, yeah. it is uh, a demographic that is somewhat older. Right. Yes. I mean, there are younger people there, no, which it, astonishes me, but and I give them older. great credit. I will say that when they played Noel Coward, they did not have to explain, or felt that did not feel the need to explain who Noel Coward was. So that tells you all you need to know. Uh, and then Old Coward was interesting, although an odd song. Uh, they were fun. They were good. So, they, we play, had, they played indoors. Right. Poor Helen played once indoors, which in, was fantastic. And, and once I mean, You're sitting five feet away from yeah. a woman who plays the piano like she does. It's just an right. extraordinary experience. But then uh, the next night she performed with her quartet. Yeah. They were outdoors on the boat dock. Right. It was a little bit chilly, but mainly it was incredibly misty and foggy mm. and uh, yeah. it had to be a little tough. Well, it's a little different. On and them also, and their instruments. Also, she's not playing the piano there. She's playing a keyboard. Yeah. So, uh, whatever. Uh, but we had a great time and, uh, you know, we showed the way in terms of being in the lake, you know. Uh, so I think... Yeah, we, we did we, some hiking. We did a fair amount of swimming. Plus they have indoor swimming. So, you know. I did some yoga. Yeah, you did yoga. So... You really uh, knocked that out of the park. There's no question. <laughs> Moving right along. Yes. Uh, right. So um, I showed you an article about uh, O. Henry. Um, so, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm out, oh, I'm out of order. I'm yeah, sorry. Some, some guys can't read the cue hold, hold cards. I did want to say one thing about, uh, you're right. I know you're eager for me to say We're still a little COVID. obsessed with COVID. Yeah. Now, I have to say that at Mohonk, yeah. It was all. It was. There, it was still the mass COVID indoors. regime. Yeah. Uh, you were wearing masks everywhere indoors. You could take your mask off to eat and drink, yeah. um, and they wore mask in the yoga class, etc. Uh, but uh, it, but you're outdoors so much. It doesn't yeah, make any and uh, we are finding that more and more businesses in our area, in um, you know Pennsylvania, New Jersey area, people are. Asking everyone to mask up. So some are, some are. It's so, it's not consistent. So it's on our minds. Yes, but it's, yeah. It's still, well, look, it just. Uh, we're not here to shed any light in terms of uh, scientific insight that others don't have. But it is interesting, the way uh, it gets reported, the way the information gets absorbed. Uh, and particular interest to me, there was an article by Dave uh, Leonard, who writes for the New York Times. Um, he does a newsletter for them called The Morning. He's been a columnist for a long time. He's won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, I will mention his political leaning only because this has become relevant whenever you talk about COVID. He would be what we would call left of center. But let's leave it at that. Um, and, uh, and yet um, he writes an article that perhaps you wouldn't expect from that political orientation if the political orientation dominates. And the headline is data shows less alarming picture of Delta. And his point is that the risk of catching the virus uh, in a serious way, uh, if you've been vaccinated, is minuscule. The word minuscule is in his article. Um, and that what's going on in his mind is that uh, things got confused uh, or got off the track 
when news came out that vaccinated people with the Delta variant carried roughly the same so-called viral load as those who were unvaccinated. And a lot of people thought, oh my God, the vaccination, the vaccination doesn't uh, work effectively against the Delta variant. He says that's just not true because the fact of the matter is, even if the viral load is the same, the question is, how does the viral load manifest itself in a person who's vaccinated? And the answer is, it does not. So um, the result is, again, I don't want to give a lot of numbers because what's confusing this, confusing everybody about this is too many numbers. But he says, look, the chances if you were, um, if you've been vaccinated uh, of contracting COVID or depending on where you are, or your habits, it's either one in 5,000 or one in 10,000. Uh, and the way he sums it up is this. He says, look, for the vaccinated, COVID is akin to the flu and usually a mild flu. The country does not grind to a halt over the flu. Uh, again, another uh, conclusion of his. In reality, the risks of getting any version of the virus remain small for the vaccinated, and the risks of getting badly sick remain minuscule. My best attempt uh, to summarize this is to say that the COVID risk for most vaccinated people are of the same order of magnitude as risks that people unthinkingly accept every day, like riding in a vehicle. Okay. All right. So, you know, calm down. I, I would just say that um, when I read it, yeah, it seemed more like the what you just said and not yeah. what you said at the beginning. It's not that you it's not that the chances of getting the Delta variant are minuscule. The chances of getting seriously sick. Yes. Okay. I'll, okay. Go, I'll go with that. Um so because you gotta admit, you hear every day of people right. uh, but he says get being diagnosed with it, COVID even you know, yeah, right but, after but, the but that's first that, of all, that's yeah. anecdotal evidence. That that itself I, is a small I understand, I understand. And number but, two, I, and it's and it's his his statement about mild flu says so so some people are getting the mild flu. Yes. All right. So, you can get sick, but it's minuscule. Right. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you for that update. All right. Now that's straightened everybody out. All right. All right, moving right along, because yeah. uh, people talk about that a lot. Let's talk <laughs> Let's talk about something different, and uh, this is pretty different. You said to me, well, you know, did you see the article? Did you read the article about uh, O. Henry yeah. in the Wall Street Journal? And I said, no. And uh, I, I said, but I like O. Henry. And he says, well, what do you know about him? I said, nothing. And so uh, you tricked me into looking at the article. He, o. Henry... The uh, author, short story writer, uh, basically, um, lived from 1862, 1910, and turns out he's very interesting. He had a a crazy life, a short life. He dies uh, when he's 47 years old. Hmm. He he was a drinker, etc. But anyway, um, the, the way the article starts... In the Wall Street Journal, before he was known as O. Henry and the author of The Gift of the Magi. Right. All right. Uh, most of us uh, elderly folks remember that story. Um, uh, William Sidney Porter wrote another yarn about a husband and wife. Blah, 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 blah. The, the point is, his real name was uh, William Sidney Porter. And uh, he, um, he had quite a life. There's a new book out. O. Henry, 101 Stories, edited by Ben Yagoda, all right, with all his stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the, the idea of his stories are kind of normal, everyday people and situations, and it always ends with a kind of twist. twist. Yes. And it's kind of a, usually a positive twist, an interesting, well, maybe I, even I think, poignant twist. How about an ironic twist? I don't know if it's ironic. Always I Depends on the story. It, but uh, def- very often poignant. you yeah. got to agree with that. Right. Okay. Think of uh, Gift of the Magi. Right. Where, you know, don't, you don't two people, two people are buying each other uh, Christmas gifts. gifts. Right. And, uh, and I think the, you know, they're set in certainly a very different time period from our own. But I think they're still pretty relatable. Mm-hmm. I think the... Um, the ultimate subject, the emotions and relations that he's writing about are uh, pretty relatable. So anyway, back to what's interesting about uh, his life. Um, He was born in North Carolina, worked as a pharmacist, ranch cook, 
land office clerk in Texas for a while. He was working at a bank, okay? Mm. But apparently the their methodologies were a little bit relaxed, and somehow he gets... Uh, Accused of um, embezzlement. Embezzlement. Yes. The, of the sum of like $862. Right. And uh, so he, I guess, um, is about to, uh, um, he's about, he, he's going to be arrested, but he, his wife is dying. So he actually um, escapes to go tend to his wife right. and then he will end up in prison later. Um, he he also goes. I mean, I mean he um, he flees to Honduras, and he's actually um, who has apparently no extradition mm-hmm. agreements with the U.S. And he was trying to get his family over there. He had a wife and and daughter, and uh, but she was too ill to travel. Um, so that's how he ends up going back and getting caught, um, which is right. too bad. But while he's there, he's writing a story. And he originates the term Banana Republic. Right. Um, so who knew? Yeah, I mean, he comes across as kind of an interesting guy. He, he does so many things, and many of them unsuccessful, before he becomes a writer. And uh, then uh, Presto Bingo, I mean, uh, his writing is, I guess, embraced. I mean, uh, people yeah. must have picked up but on it But it's always these short stories. Yeah. Um, they're in the newspaper, yeah. you know, and... Uh, he sort of liked that idea right. that everybody could read his stories, you know. And he was, he, was, he says, show me a New Yorker going without his daily paper. He kind of reveled in that idea that everybody right. would be exposed. But it's not like he was discovered after death. He was successful in his, you know, in his 40s. His yeah, people years. thought he wouldn't, it wouldn't last, actually. But it, is it, he a great writer? I, you know, I, is, I, I don't know. is he a man for the ages? I don't know. He's remembered and, uh, you know, it's funny. When I was... Uh, Seventh or eighth grade. You know, at a certain point, your schools get consolidated. Everyone goes to a separate elementary school, and suddenly you're in the same junior high school with a bunch of other schools. And you get into your English class. In my case, I get into English class, and, you know, people did a little reading, whatever background they did in sixth grade in their particular uh, elementary school. And there were this one group of the cool kids who would say, oh, I don't know, I, I kind of swear by O. Henry. And I'd go like... <laughs> What, says what that? I'm telling you, what, what are you talking cool about? They said, look, I don't know if you've been reading Scholastic Review or what you've been on to, but I've been reading all Henry's stories. They talked about him like he was Philip Roth. And I said to myself, well, I don't know who this guy is. And then they started explaining it to me. I said, yeah, oh, cute. But, uh, you know, I'm still reading the sports section, whatever. I don't believe whatever. that story for a minute. It's entirely you know, true. When did you go to school? The man when? died in 1910. I understand. Was this like, you know, I, 1902? No, it was. I didn't put a year on it. It was in the, uh, I don't know, late 60s, mid-60s. It's the mid-60s. You don't believe well, Henry was popular? Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, popular among high school students now, in the 60s? School. He was a senior high school. There was one or two schools in my school system and the bread and butter of their reading projects for uh, probably these so-called advanced classes was reading all Henry. That's not exactly a stretch. I, what, what's not a stretch? That it's not reading O. Henry. O. Henry is pretty accessible. Let me tell you something. I mean, if you're... If, I, I'm no if, argument here. If the cool kids wanted to be really snobby, they would say, well, you know, Shakespeare. Blah, this blah, this blah, is blah, as blah. much as they were exposed to. Believe right. me, I sped by those kids. Anyway, um, I, now I, I need to go back and read more of these stories. All right. Well, there is a remark totally that he was somewhat relatable. trapped about in his genre. Oeuvre. Yeah, well, the, in his... Um, approach. Yeah, well, yeah. not approach, but I don't know what the word Formula. is. But his Yeah, um, this little doing the twist at yeah, the right, end. Right. It's like, you know, um, he he says... Uh, well, sure, sure. So he has to sort of meet people's expectations. People yeah, you got to do that every what's time. What's the twist? What's you, the twist? You're stuck having to and do is, that. It's as good as the last story. Yeah. Every time, maybe it's a little boring. There's a great picture of him in the paper, and I have to just say... It's a fun picture because it's obviously from the early 20th century. Yeah. And uh, he is, uh, he would have been a, bit, a little bit older than my grandfather, but he's sitting in a chair yeah. uh, of, that uh, my grandfather had pretty much the same chair. Okay. And now Granger, our son, yeah. has that, that chair. Now we know it's why kind you're of excited. fun. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a little, right. I, I feel we're connected, me and O'Henry. So there was an article, uh, again, this is kind of serious, but it's just interesting to me. 
As Afghan refugee crisis unfolds, Koreans recall miracle evacuation. And of course, there's been a lot in the news about the evacuation or perhaps uh, uh, incomplete evacuation of uh, Afghan citizens uh, as part of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, you, you might say to yourself, well, what were the expectations in terms of how many people were supposed to be um, evacuated or not from a historical perspective? And this gives you a historical perspective. It's an article about the experience of uh, many Koreans who apparently uh, relate very strongly to the American uh, evacuation of Koreans in 1950 from a port called Hungnam. This was in the, the Korean War. The American military was withdrawing after some defeats. Uh, I shouldn't say withdrawing, retreating uh, after some defeats in North Korea. And uh, they were going to exit from this port, Hungnam, and sort of uh, reassess and, and reassemble uh, on the other side of the uh, body of water. But having said that, uh, there's terrible concern on the part of the folks who had been sympathetic to the Americans who were very concerned. Uh, more than concerned about the North Korean regime taking over in the absence of the Americans and what would happen to them. Uh, They'll be subject to persecution and death and whatever. Uh, and you had a scene apparently similar there as to what you saw with the airport in Afghanistan in terms of North Koreans trying to get on ships uh, that were uh, with the American military to get out of Hungnam. And the story there is apparently uh, the Americans were extremely successful in getting out uh, many, many uh, Koreans who lived in North Korea. 91,000 refugees were mm -hmm. evacuated by the American military from Hungnam. Uh, and apparently this is, a, uh, this is an event that resonates very loudly uh, even today in South Korea, uh, particularly in the minds of the descendants of those who were part of that evacuation, so much so that it's considered responsible for a lot of the closeness of the ties between North, South Korea and the United States, even now. Um, as I say in the Times, older South Koreans invariably cite the evacuation when they talk about their country's alliance with the U.S. forged during the war. And they say it's one of the reasons South Korea helped airlift Afghans out of Afghanistan last month. They, they airlifted oh, 400 really? Afghanistans out of there. Well, it says that the Americans were all in, that they were actually, um, what do you call it, throwing overboard uh, weapons, yeah. et cetera, to make room for more refugees. Yes, and, the, and the th what they focus on in particular is one particular uh, ship, which was called the SS Meredith Victory, a United States merchant marine cargo freighter. Um which was one of the last ships to leave. Uh, and the numbers are kind of unbelievable. I, I want to find this because I had to read it three times to believe it. Um, apparently, this ship uh, was only supposed to take uh, a few hundred people, and they took many more than that. Uh, hold on, hold on. I thought I had it. Um uh, I'll find the, the figure in a minute. Um, well, I'll get it. It's tens of thousands of people. Um, yeah. The, the ship was designed to carry no more than 59 people. It left with 14,000 refugees. It's a ship for 59, had 14,000 people, uh, including uh, couples. There were five um, babies born. On the, on the voyage, ship. yeah, the ship. and they, the Americans, of course, gave them clever names like Kimchi One, Kimchi Two, all the way to Kimchi Five, and they have a reunion. They talk about a reunion between Kimchi One and Kimchi Five that took place recently. But also, one of the descendants of uh, people on the ship uh, is this current president of South Korea, oh, really? who talked again about this event mm -hmm. uh, when he visited the U.S. a few years ago. The captain uh, of the ship, the Meredith Victory, is a fellow named. Leonard LaRue, who made the decision to abandon weapons and, and cargo, as you mentioned, to carry as many refugees as he could, um, became a Benedictine monk uh, and uh, after the war. And the U.S. Bishops' Conference has recently expressed support for his canonization. Hmm. Uh, in any event, uh, talk about being blissfully ignorant of something. That was in 1950. And uh, let's call that a successful evacuation. Right.
Uh, well, I have an obituary here for uh, Michel Laclotte, director who created the modern Louvre, uh, is dead at, eight, at 91. And uh, so he, he had uh, an interesting story. And um, his two big achievements, I guess, were um, kind of creating the Musée d'Orsay. Oh. Um, okay. Which, you know, was a train station. Right, right, right. right. So uh, this is in 1972. Now, um, the world is reeling from the loss of Penn Station. You know, right. New York has torn down right. this great uh, neoclassical, you right. know, um, center of, you know, modern life. And uh, um, so, you know, you have people in France who don't want to see that happen to the beautiful Musée d'Orsay. Not, it's not the, muse, the, uh, the train, train station, station, the Orsay. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, there are various suggestions for what it might become. You know, maybe it could be a um, hotel or uh, some kind of place where they could promote, um, you know, um, promote... Uh, um, uh, products uh, from the provinces, so to speak. And uh, uh, Leclerc comes up with this idea to make it into a, um, a, a gallery, a museum. So this was in the 60s or 70s? Or this now? is 1972. And so they already had, they had the Jeux de Pomme, which was the Impressionist Museum. Okay, right. That needed to be expanded. They were, they were thinking they were going to you know, enlarge that. So why not just have a bigger, better, larger, you know, sort of 19th century museum mm. in this space? And uh, what happens is he goes to the minister in charge of making the decision. And he says, minister, you have to choose between Cezanne and cheese. You know, the cheese promoting it. the product, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, cheese lost. Yeah. And so, and you know, that is a fantastic uh, space yeah. for art. Not everybody loved it the way it was uh, renovated. Right. Um, it was uh, Paul uh, Goldberger called it, um, described the galleries as bunkers, right. vaguely Egyptian version of postmodern architecture. So, uh, but, you know, I, I will say, you know, as someone walking in and not knowing much about it, it, you know, it, it works for me. And yeah. I love looking out those windows that still have the uh, big, clock the clock, face big clock that you can What was that movie? Uh, Hugo? At. Hugo, I guess. Uh, yeah. Know. Well, but, but, you know, other, people, other movies have shown. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing he did, he, you know, he became the, um, uh, um, director of the Met, uh, but, you know, he had been obsessed from a young age with museums. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so it's it's kind of no surprise right. that he ends up uh, doing this. Um, and and he, had, he did some interesting work. He was especially involved in uh, helping to ident identify works found in Germany that had been stolen from Jewish collectors. Um, so he had an interesting career, um, but... Uh, he um, his next next big project in terms of uh, the Louvre, or his greatest project in terms of the Louvre, is uh, pulling it together into the twentieth century. Um, let me uh, describe how uh, um, Gary Tintero, uh, director of the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, we just uh, were talking about him a week or two ago, says he that Mr. Merleau-Ponty belongs to a truly remarkable generation of French museum curators and administrators who transformed French museology into, in the last quarter of the 20th century and created lasting institutions that led the Western world in innovation. So apparently in the 70s, Louvre was a mess. It was just, it was impossible to, uh, you know, navigate. Oh, it's uh, huge. It was, huge. Yeah, it, it, it was a total mess. And uh, so he takes the bull by the horns, and um, part so of let me, this. Let me let me cut through. So you're what I'm getting from you, and you just think everyone assumes this, but I wouldn't. So the directors of museums are important. You're saying it's not just a matter of having a bunch of paintings. The directors of museums really steer museums into prominence, into effectiveness. They can make or break a particular museum. I oh, think that's implicit in yeah, what they're different, different directors do different things. Yeah, some but, of them are more into increasing the collection. Some of them are more into creating great but the, exhibitions. 
the need at this time was actually creating the recreating the museum. And also, it's implicit in what you're saying is that they create a lot of value. That it, that a sophisticated, yeah. able yeah. director yeah. can really make a museum prominent and successful, whereas right. the opposite, uh, not so much. Yeah, but people may disagree about what makes a museum yeah, they prominent. Can disagree. How, how prominent yeah. you want it to well, be? Can... Are you trying to appeal to art lovers? Are you just trying to get those I, big I, numbers? I, I understand you, know? you can disagree, but the, you know, okay. the guys, his no, anyway, his obits in the Times for Louvre, a reason. 70s, a mess. Yeah. It's that that big courtyard. Uh, yeah, that yeah, big yeah. courtyard. By day, a parking lot. By night, a gay cruising area. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he is the one. But now in that courtyard, what do you see? What? The Iampe Pyramid. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And not everybody loves that either. But that you know that that just scrapes the surface. There's a you know a tremendous amount of. Is the um, what's the number one museum in the world? Why is, are you asking me that? Is, is do do I look like some list maker? I don't know. Okay. Okay. The Louvre is up there. What are your criteria? Okay. Is, the, right? is the Louvre up there? I, I'm not like you. Who's the number one baseball team in the world? Well, that would be a fair question. All right. I can right. answer that question. Yeah, I bet you can. I don't think that way. All right. So anyway, um, Michel Leclot, uh, um great uh, museum <laughs> leader. I should mention one other thing. You know, we were talking about Botticelli last week. Yeah. And what a businessman he was. Yes. And of course, uh, and and I was saying, you know, well, they were all businessmen. Right. You know, and uh, because when you think about it, you know, it's a little bit late in the history of court artists. Yeah. Like an artist, uh, you know, in some ways, Botticelli was the court artist for the Medici. Okay. What does a court artist do? Any freaking thing the boss wants, okay? If they need new varnish on the carriages, he varnishes the carriages, you know? If they need some magnificent painting for a hall, he does it, you know, Uh, et cetera. Why are we bringing up Potticelli? Because, you know, in... In that article last week, in the exhibition last week, they're making a big point. Oh, you know, Botticelli's workshop did all these different things. Everybody did those different things. But one thing that's interesting, we're talking about the painting, okay, Birth of Venus, right? During this time period, all right, Italians were painting with tempera on board, on wood, okay? Birth of Venus and tempera's an egg-based paint. Birth of Venus is an enormous painting. It's, a, you know, we don't have a wall big enough in our house. And, That's um, why we haven't bought it. That's right. It was painted on canvas. Yeah. Canvas. Really unusual in Florence at this time. Okay. Okay. Which makes us think that it might have been painted for a special occasion. Like it was a big banner for a wedding mm-hmm. or something like that. Okay, this comes in handy. Have I told you this story before? No, but I don't know what it has to do with what we're talking about. Think about how big, how big yeah. the Primavera is. How 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 big these paintings are. Yeah. When the Nazis were coming to town, yeah. all right, so and the Italians up? were trying to hide all their art. Right. Okay, very hard to hide some of these big paintings that are on wood, but the Birth of Venus. You could fold up, and it got folded up and put in a villa, uh-huh. in a closet, and everyone forgot. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, as after um, when things were safe, there were, it was an American soldier who was kind of uh, wandering around, making sure the villa was cleared out or something, and uh, he lucked into it. So... Anyway, that that's just there's a a lot of uh, fun stuff relevant to those fifteenth and sixteenth century painters. Okay, so let's you know we we're talking about the number one museum. You're trying to engage me on that, but uh, <laughs> I'll tell you who the number one tennis player is. It's Novak Djokovic. Djokovic. Uh, Novak Djokovic is the number one tennis player. He's about to play the uh, final of the U.S. Open. Well, he's probably uh, playing it as we speak. Yeah. And uh, if he were to win, uh, he would win the Grand Slam. People keep calling it the calendar Grand Slam. No, it, that is the Grand Slam. To win all four in one year is what a Grand Slam is. And it was last done a million years ago by Rod Laver. And I remember that, but nobody else does. But the point is, it's been years and years and years. And all the great players like Federer 
and Nadal, you know, haven't been able to do that. So it would be kind of amazing. It would also give him a number of major wins that would be greater than uh, Federer and Nadal. So he's got a lot going on here. Maybe he'll win, maybe he won't, but he'll keep playing, and he certainly has made his mark. What's interesting is that, uh, you know, I've watched him a few times. We saw him in person on Saturday, and I watched one of his matches uh, the other day against Zverev. And, you know, if you didn't know the names of the players, you might say the better player is the other guy. Zverev. I mean, he hits the ball at least as well. He makes very few mistakes. He's bigger. He's stronger. He serves harder. Uh, and that's been true of several opponents of uh, Djokovic. So what's going on? People talk about his mental strength, his physical stamina. And uh, I think that is the answer. I think he is able to go into a match with an idea like he's more than willing, if not eager, to play the full five sets, to play three and a half hours. He's playing a waiting game. He's leaving some energy in reserve. He's planning on playing five uh, sets. And uh, he prevails in the last few sets. He keeps doing it again and again. What's interesting to me is that uh, he wasn't always that way. And I have forgotten about this. But I said when, when Djokovic started out, as a young guy, he was one of those guys who used to take a lot of breaks for injuries. And the other players used to complain. You've seen mm-hmm. some, some incidents of that even this year. Yeah. And they quote Andy Roddick, who was a player some years ago, saying, this guy's I don't know anything about, this guy's a nutcase. I mean, he, I don't know what it is this time. Is it a hip, his elbow, whatever. All I know is I'm sitting on the court waiting for five minutes, for 10 minutes, whatever, while he takes another medical break. He doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to play in this business. Um Eventually, he worked his way out of that. And the two things that are credited for that are, number one, he changed his diet. And we, we've heard about this, to a gluten-free, largely plant-based diet. And that's gotten a lot of publicity in terms of turning around his physical abilities and stamina. But the second uh, is probably at least as important, and I never had noticed it before or heard about it. Turns out that he had endurance issues related to breathing difficulties. And as a result, he had two surgeries for a deviated septum. And that uh, cured his breathing difficulties. All right. And that's uh, enhances breathing, enhances stamina, and here we are. So, well, breathing is important. I yeah, in many, many really ways. Important. Yeah. So we'll see if he does it. Okay. Uh, just a quick shout out to Willard Scott, who passed away at the age of 87. Uh, you may know of Willard Scott as being the NBC weatherman, mm-hmm. uh, who um, he was on the, the Today Show. He would read out the, um, he did the weather for years, right. for a few years. And then later he became the guy who reads out the happy birthday to the centenarians across the country okay and you know kind of a goofy guy people some people describe him as a buffoon i remember him uh, from the radio uh, because i grew up in the washington area and he had a show um called the joy boys with ed walker who was blind and uh, they did these improv little skits yeah. on the radio. Right. And I, to this day, I remember the jingle was, We are the joy boys of radio. We chase electrons to and fro. And uh, I can't, I don't remember a single show or anything. But we must have listened to that because I, I knew that well, jingle pretty well. He was also Bozo the Clown, which uh, okay. I'm sure we watched. Really? Okay. And... Um, his success with Bozo the Clown yeah. led him to be one of the early Ronald McDonald's. Oh, you're kidding. No. I didn't and know so it is. and I was astonished when I saw wait a minute, that's our Ronald McDonald. I mean he would looks the same. He was on T V yeah. all the time and on commercials and you know, um oh, things as Ronald I, McDonald. I, apparently I I had read years ago that he really it really kind of broke his heart that uh uh, McDonald's didn't hire him to be like the national oh, really? um, image of Ronald McDonald. And, and in here, I think it says the, because they thought he was um, too chubbly. Uh, but. Um, well, I get, yeah, they don't want the food to be associated with uh, overweight. Uh, so, anyway, so actually, uh, he's a goofy guy. A lot of people hate him, a lot of people love him. They say that uh, Barbara Bush ran out of a parade to give him a big kiss when she saw him on the sideline. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, uh, uh, Bryant Gumbel, uh, you know, said some 
very mean things about him well, in an email or something. Say, Brian's once. almost said a lot of mean things about a lot of people. Okay. I, but uh, Brian Bungle was kind of an interesting guy. But but, uh, but he was he had, he had a um, you know uh, bachelor's degree in uh, philosophy and religion from American University. He yeah. he started in radio at American University actually. So and and he will say that I worked pretty hard to make this all look um, yeah. you know. So it falls into place. So he didn't study uh, weather or anything like that. When you think he how did it. not study the weather. The guy he replaced on the Today Show had advanced degrees in like <laughs> physics yeah. and meteorology. Yeah. And, not so uh, much, yeah. you know. Well, um, you know, that's interesting, the bozo thing. Of course, I didn't know the jingle. I'm sure he'll be singing that to Hazi before you know it. But uh, I do recall. I haven't thought of that jingle for, you know, 50 years. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's quite tall, wasn't he? Very big guy, yeah. Okay, so that contributes to the Bozo thing. Because yeah. I remember from a yeah. kid, because Bozo, the jingle didn't make it to New York, but Bozo did. Uh-huh. And uh, Bozo was tall. Uh-huh. Bozo was big. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, now I'm learning. Now it's all coming clear. Between that and O'Henry, and, uh, and everything's I just, falling into I place. just remember in the 80s, yeah. and of course I had left the Washington area, so he yeah. get he gets on the Today Show yeah. in the um, in 1987. Yeah. And I was astonished. I said, but that's Willard Scott. Well, there you How go. How does he get up here? Well, you know? it's, it's, he was biding his time. All right. So, uh, quick point about Topo Chico. Topo that, Chico, it, which it, I am drinking as we speak. You're enjoying a okay. Topo Chico. It, it's a carbonated mineral water right, from Mexico. The sparkling water brand was once hard to find, the Times says, but now it's easier to find. And and, and here's why. They, they, well, well, let me just say, so okay, yeah. all right, that um, I was first introduced to it. A couple of months ago, yeah. in June, yeah. it is my brother Steed's yeah. drink of a choice. Yeah. Okay, right, well. he drinks a lot of it. I never heard of it, and uh, his wife Sherry said it's a little bit hard to get. Whenever I see it, uh, I buy a case, buy down, two cases, put them in, away. They're down in Georgia. Yeah, we call it Topo Gijo. Well, it's because that was the name of the puppet on the Sullivan yeah, Show. Yeah. yeah, but that's because we're insufferable anyway, insufferable this, yeah, we're difficult and extremely we're funny annoying. people yeah exactly but, um, but anyway so it's called Topo Chico and it, apparently it's been always been it very looks successful. very exotic and it is and let's talk about what it is it is uh, a mineral water so there's a little something to it and it's highly carbonated and the highly carbonated it, it feels a little more substantial than a puts lot of a other spring sauce. in your step it's uh, certainly put a spring in your step since you haven't shared your glass uh, we'll stick with you but but here's what's interesting about it. It's it's, it's portrayed as an overnight success. Uh, yes and no. Apparently, it's uh, it's always been successful uh, where it was distributed. And that was initially in Texas. And it was a tremendous market share in Texas. What happened was it started to be distributed more widely. Why? Because in 2017, it was purchased by, you guessed it, Coca-Cola. And so that kind of takes the shine off some of it. Uh, because you like to think of it as some exotic uh, drink, you know, some uh, small kind of bespoke thing. Uh, the brand logo was an image of an Aztec princess whose mysterious illness was cured by bathing and drinking in the water. That's what it says in the corporation logo. Well, but, you like to think by drinking it, you're one of the cool kids. Exactly. But you're really yeah, but it's one of the millions. The Coca-Cola. But yeah. in fairness, number one, according to this article at least, uh, Coca-Cola does not really interfere too much with brands like this that they buy. So whatever Topo Chico is putting together, uh, Coca-Cola's got nothing to do with it. They're just distributing it. Topo Chico is benefiting from what you uh, imagine would be extremely widespread distribution opportunities available from Coca-Cola, which is why you see it all over, which is why sales are up. But the problem is it's single source. It's a spring in Mexico. The distribution's uh, manifold, but the spring's the same. Well, and, we hope it's a spring. Yeah, they, you know, look, the we, article we insists hope. insists it's the spring, right. and as okay. a result, you have shortages of Topo Chico. Right. Do you like it? Yeah, I do like it, but I can't get my hands on it. You drink it once in a while, but I save it for you because, you know, you're important. <laughs> oh, you're such, such a gentleman. That's the kind of guy I am. All right. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal, not in the Wall Street Journal, in the New York Times, there was a obituary for Dolores Custer who um, passed away, um, stylist who got cornflakes ready for their close-ups. Yes. They describe her. Um, so, I mean... Well, it's an interesting industry. It's an interesting industry, just because... Food, um, styling. food I mean, styling. Yeah, yeah. food yeah. styling. You never... Uh, you don't... Food looks great in photographs. Right. 
And when you read about all the crazy things people do to make it look great, she, she, in one picture, she, with tweezers, took off every one of those teeny little hairs that's on a raspberry Mm. uh, to make the raspberry look better. Um, She will, you know, use tweezers to tuck noodles in soup in a certain uh, direction. I like that before. Um, She has a special device that... uh, heats up uh, cheese uh, on a slice of pizza so that it drips and, you know, stretches in just the right uh, way. She has uh, thumbtacks on her spatulas so the pizza doesn't slide off the spatula in the picture. Let me ask you this question. Yeah. Yeah, it's the industry that's interesting. The woman might be mildly interesting, uh, but uh, she was a pioneer, so that makes her interesting. But, But here's my question, okay? You've got people taking all kinds of pictures of food now. You know, on on Facebook, they're saying, I made this cake, uh, or I'm in this restaurant, I'm having this, and they're photographing. You see it all the time. So how do those pictures uh, compare? Some of them are very good. Some of them are very good. Um, But there are times, have you ever, you know, uh, once in a while you're looking at uh, the pictures that are are of uh, entrees in a restaurant, and you say, oh my God, that looks awful. I would never eat that. Um, Or, you know, you see somebody's... Instagram and things don't look appetizing at all. Um, But uh, lots of times they look good. I have always, I have made some fabulous dishes. Yes. And then, you know, I'm not on Instagram, but, um, and then run to get my phone, take the picture, and it looks completely inedible. Really? In my picture. Hmm. So it is a skill. Yeah. You know, food can be just like um, a regular. A human stylist can make people look more photogenic. There is a real skill to making these foods look more photogenic. And you know that lots of times, you know, the ice cream is really mashed potatoes or something like that. You know, you hear all kinds of crazy stories. So it's, um, you know, sometimes your food looks good if you take a picture, but lots of times it doesn't. So this, um, you know, getting these money shots for these very various uh, commercials and photographs. I think commercials, it must be harder to have the food well, look they good over one of the a commercials period of time. With, yeah. with Fabio but she being there with the and commercials and um, yeah. photographers. Because a lot of things are going on at the same time. You're dealing with yeah. real people. So that's actors. a real skill. And she was uh, you know, a pioneer. She wrote a book about it, Food <laughs> Styling, The Art of Preparing Food for the Camera yeah. in 2010. Well, what I'm getting is you need a pair so of tweezers. So you want that kind of anything. information. Tweezers is the answer. Uh, so finally... Uh, you know, obviously it's 9-11 this week and we're not going to go on about 9-11. You know, it is, you know, obviously a very sad occasion, very sad anniversary. Um, there was one article that struck me, uh, an article in the New York Times about uh, Todd Beamer. Todd Beamer uh, was uh, one of the people on United 93, the flight that uh, was, that crashed uh, near uh, the Pentagon and that a lot of people died. Everybody no, it wasn't died. near the Pentagon. Yeah. What was it near? It was out in uh, Shanksville. Oh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, I'm sorry. Shanksville, Pennsylvania. That's right. Uh, and uh, there was an uprising on the flight, uh, reputedly led by Todd Beamer and a couple of others, to fight with the hijackers. And that's what uh, caused it actually to go down before it reached its target. Well, I guess they surmised yes. what these guys yes. were trying to do. They right. were trying to attack the White House. Yeah, well, that's, or, that's what I got and, confused um, by. I was trying to go to Washington. And they made uh, the decision. The, the passengers, some of the passengers, including Todd Beamer, right. allegedly made the decision to um, resist. resist and try to crash the plane, sacrificing themselves right. uh, to uh, save yeah, so it's many a, more. Very sad. It's a very, very admirable. The article uh, reminds us, you know, the, you know, how uh, the courage of those involved, uh, the courage of Todd Beamer, uh, and goes into some details. But what's interesting to me is is written by a woman whose name is uh, Mene uh, Ukabaruna, uh, who is from uh, Princeton Junction. And she says what struck her, and the reason that she's writing this article, is because uh, she only recently became aware of Todd Beamer and became aware of the amazing fact that he was from a town very near Princeton Junction, where she lives, that town being Cranberry, New Jersey, where we lived for many, many years. Uh, So we know a little bit about some of the facts. Um, 
And she says she was somewhat chagrined that the only uh, memorial that exists to Todd Beamer that she knows is that uh, the post office in Cranberry has a very small plaque uh, calling it the Todd Beamer uh, Post Office. Um, and more people should know his story uh, on a national level. Okay. So uh, what's interesting is that um, uh, everybody does know that story. I think. I mean, I, I don't, she's writing like she's saying it, um, it's kind of an obscure or unknown fact. Here's someone she wants to bring their attention. Uh, there was a movie made in 2006 called United no, but Daniel, she's saying she didn't know. No, I understand. He was from, no, no, you know, no, no, three no. miles away. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, she's saying more. She's actually saying that people don't know it on a national level. Look, here's my only point. The thing with 9-11 is it's so personal. And the way people see it and remember it and understand it is personal. And everyone's entitled to their own personal perspective on the situation. Tom Beamer, his story is extremely well known. Uh, is a movie that was done in 2006, was grossed $80 million. The leading character in the movie is Todd Beamer. It's directed by Paul Greengrass, who did all the Bourne movies. Uh, it, it, it was a big deal. It was a big story. The only reason that you don't see more in the way of, uh, let's say, remembrances in places like Cranberry is that his family had just moved to Cranberry. You'll recall that. They lived in another town. Uh, and it's not like everybody in Cranberry knew the Beamer family. They really didn't. Uh, there was even some discussion, some debate, whether it was appropriate to name the post office after him because there was someone who worked at the post office who they felt it was a, a better subject than naming the post office. But the fact of the matter is, the Todd Beamer story is an unbelievable story. I mean, he's, he's an extremely uh, compelling uh, person. Uh, as it's described. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's a story that's been told many times. It's, it's, it's not a new thing. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's useful that people hear it and understand it. But um, it's just difficult to look at it and say, well, this is what people should know. This is what people should think. This is should be publicized. This hasn't been publicized. That's too hard to do. I mean, it's just... She's just, she's just telling the story, okay? Yeah. She right. just framed it in a way you thought was not entirely Yeah, look, accurate, you're right. Okay? You're right. I, 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 okay, I'll accept that. But I will... Right. And, 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 it's just... Um, yeah. But look, it, I, you're right. The headline is, oh, I was pleased to see the story. The more that you tell the story, yes. the more you are to be pleased. I agree. And I was okay. pleased. I was pleased when I saw the headline about Todd Beamer. Okay. Because I think, you know, he deserves the recognition. All right. So don't be hating be on the... I'm not hating. I'm not hating. The but Prince I, Injunction. I was, I was just... Freelance no, author. I, I was just writer. puzzled by it. I was just puzzled by it. I mean, there's nothing obscure about Todd Beamer. I mean, uh, I think he's a, he's a significant I, figure. I think yeah. you're making the point yeah. that 20 years later, some of this is becoming obscure. And that seems unbelievable to us. I think that's actually extremely well put. I think right. that's better put than I put it. I think that's right. All right. So on that note, yeah. um, we will uh, sign off. Okay. And this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. And we'll see you next week. Okay. <laughs>